In the flood of the jail we made we can die, or we can die in the sunlight of wonder. We are the jail. We are the key. It's time to wake the world, teacher. We have a choice. So what do we call people who are worth paying attention to these days? We could call John Baveki a philosopher and cognitive scientist. We could call Nora Bateson a complexity thinker, a systems thinker, a practitioner of warm data labs. Both are experimenters with relational modalities for deeper knowing. Both are cutting edge forefront figures. But I've been sick of titles for a long time. Not that they don't hold some utility, but that somehow we've been obscuring much. As far as I'm concerned, this here is a dialogue in earnest aspiration of realizing what we can do in this moment. What is it to educate? What is it to grow? What is it to be authentic? How can we awaken into deeper understanding together? What really is the process of making effective choices? This dialogue doesn't presume to answer all of those questions, but it is towards the right way, it seems to me. And so this is a conversation with two people I consider to be true philosophers in my own sense of the term. Otherwise, I think we can just say decent people with wisdom to share and the integrity to do so. From my perspective, this podcast now is a straight up call to action to get involved in making deeper sense of who you are, who we are, and what we can do in this moment, what we can do in an enduring sense, in loving transformation with what is to come. Thank you very much to John Viveki and Nora Bateson for joining me for this conversation. I hope we have many more. There are breadcrumbs to follow in the description. Genuine opportunities to get involved. You might have to peel away a few layers as things get up and running. And perhaps you could even help. Please be patient with the first five minutes as I set the scene, open the space for this dialogue. And for those of you interested, maybe pay attention to what I do and how I do it, both from a critical perspective, but also from a learning perspective. There's a lot here, and I really hope you get a lot from it. If you do, please consider passing this on to someone you think will benefit. And I don't like to be particular about who should benefit. Now is not the time for philosophy in the deep sense of the love of wisdom to be entrapped behind walls. And actually, we can all be philosophers. It doesn't have to be some purely intellectual high and mighty thing. That shit's fucking bollocks. All right. So, here we go. So I'm so glad you're both joining me here for this. And I have um, a sense of how to proceed here. And the first thing I'd ask we do is that we take 30 seconds of silence together. And after that silence, I'm going to open the space, as it were. I have a sense, perhaps, of what a link, one of many between us is and I would presence that and not put that link or that frame before being here now together more as a departure point and we'll see where we land and then we are then we are off so if that sounds good then perhaps we can take 30 seconds of silence here I'm going to shut my eyes please feel free to do whatever is most natural I will do the same.
Okay. So it is a, a real pleasure in an uncertain time to be here with you both. Over the last four to five months, I've had the, the privilege of speaking with both of you separately on a few occasions each now. And mm-hmm. both of those conversations have been deeply meaningful to me and uh, meaningful to many I know who have listened and perhaps even transformative for me. And my sense is the wisdom inherent in the embodiment I've been present to in each of you, as well as in the theory that each of you have been developing on and express is one that is in an important sense, deeply resonant and uh, well worth presencing together. Although of course I don't just mean theory. Um, so my hope is that in this conversation, we can all of get to know each other and generate insight informative of new understanding that is beneficial and helpful really up and down the stack for, for, for ourselves, each other, others, and not in any way disconnected from mind and heart and soul. And the sense I have of, and here I'll present something that is as well uh, core to the a core insight that is moving me and driving me to express and uh, realize things in the world in conformity with or being informed by is, is the following. And perhaps we can take that as a departure point. And that is this dynamic of the relationship between authentic expression and how it is met in relationship in its context. And here I'm going to use words that I know are resonant with each of you in perhaps slightly different ways, but to that end, hopefully bring our vocabulary and sense together. The expression of authenticity when it is met in an environment of care and perhaps a few other things, although I don't want to belabor us with too many words, when authentic expression is met with care, we have here a core dynamic of the um, of the dynamic of growth. And when authentic expression is truncated, perhaps traumatized, we have here the, the opposite. We have here the retraction of the opportunity for growth in the extreme. And there's links here with this, with notions of voluntary confrontation, you know, of, of fear, of uncertainty, We have here also notions of the value of stepping into vulnerability. We're also presencing the importance of relationship and this dynamic between individual and context and self and other. So um, I, from here as a framing, I see this as being something important to all of us and deeply informative of the, of the ideas and um, ultimately embodied way we might, realize in our lives and together and i'm interested in how that lands for both of you so that's all i have to say it's a powerful framing (laughs) i guess i would say i'd want to pull out two of the central things uh, that were sort of anchor points in what you said this idea of authentic dialogue authentic discourse and part of what i would like to explore Um, 
is the possibility of opening both of those back up, putting them into question, you know, in a Heideggerian sense. What do we mean by authenticity? I think um, it's, I mean, Heidegger is perhaps the person who made that, uh, you know, uh, a way of speaking, and but I imagine uh, it has drifted quite away uh, from what uh, it could be for us. Uh, I'd like to, what I'm saying is I want to open these both up in a reciprocal questioning. Um, what do we mean? What are we trying to get at when we're trying to get at authenticity? What are we trying to get at when we're trying to get into uh, dialogue or what I like to call dialogos? Um, and how do those two opening up, how do they relate to each other? Because um, I think you're right. There's, this, there, there's people are, at least the people I'm coming into communication with, um, people are hungry uh, for a, a kind of, uh, connectedness um, that simultaneously grounds them and affords them also growth and transformation. Um, they have a, uh, there's a hunger for this, uh, but um, they feel that a lot of the ways um, the terms and the concepts they bring to bear to try and express it are not translating into uh, transformative practice. And so there seems to me to be a gap uh, between the conceptual framework we're using um, uh, to try and uh, express this and the ability to achieve the goals uh, that we're pursuing in the expression. So that's kind of what I'm interested in in this framing right now. I guess what comes up for me right away around that is this, um, the paradoxes of um, of where actually is the self. So I'm assuming that there's, if we're going to be starting with this notion of authenticity, that we would be tapping into something that was something sincerely within me that I could mm. share with you. And the paradox there is that, um, that I, you know, of course, I would offer you everything. I would gladly unzip myself and be there. Mm -hmm. um, but I have this, this um, kind of interesting tension of recognizing that if I did, what you would see is all the ways in which the context that I have lived within, the experiences that I have had, the the you know the traumas from school and being wrong and the the way in which you know maybe right now our speech patterns are getting judged mm -hmm. uh that those would be indications and they would be they would be a, a, an illustration of all the ways in which that thing that I would wish to unzip and show you that would be truly mine is actually of the context that I have been in. Mm -hmm. And I honestly have no idea how to tell the difference. Um, I would like to be able to say, and here I am in my most authentic self. But what the heck is that? And how could I possibly extract that or find this this nugget or essence even um because i think there is a a, a kind of yearning to get at that essence mm -hmm. that is somehow untouched 
by my culture, my experience, my, um, my, my life, my ancestors' lives, my, you know, my children's lives, my, and I think especially right now in this moment where there's so much, uh, melting in the structures around us, that this is a question that bears a lot of consideration around if I am shaped and formed and forged in the, the, the various structures that I have lived within, who am I when those structures are gone? Mm-hmm. I think that's really important. Um, how, what I'm understanding you saying, and of course, please interject if I uh, misframe you, uh, but there is, I think uh, you're doing part of what I wanted to do, which is um, the automaticity by which authenticity is understood in terms of a reconnection with one's inner true self is very, is very much the thing I want to bring into question. Uh, mm. And that the assumed idea that we have this stable sort of Cartesian uh, subjectivity within us, that that is the ultimate normative guide for our entire life is precisely the thing, um, paradox, uh, not paradoxically, ironically, which was Heidegger introduced the term authenticity to try and call all of that into question. And now it has somehow <laughs> circled around, it has somehow circled around that authenticity is, it, that, that shows you how pervasive, almost parasitic, that, 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 that formulation of thinking uh, we want to call into question is. How it can take something that was so carefully crafted to call it into question and absorb it back into itself and say, no, no, this is what it means and this is what we've always been talking about. I, I find that for, uh, something that we should also just step back and pause on uh, right away and say, oh, notice how this, how, how the very thing that was supposed to challenge uh, all of this uh, got reabsorbed into the very machinery it was trying to challenge. And I think that's, uh, that should give us um, some pause for how carefully we need to work together on this right now, because there's a lot happening in our cultural, cognitive, grammar, and our background that's going to keep driving us back towards um, that, that the, the very thing. Uh, it's it's going to drive us towards a closure, the very thing we're trying to bring into question. But I hope I understood you, Nora, because that's what that's the connection yeah. I'm getting from what you said. That's that's exactly where I want to go, and uh, I mean even language, and yes. certainly um, communication patterns become a kind of, of reflection, of repetition, of extension of these various contextual threads that say, this is who I am, this is, and when I want to say, yeah, but this is the real me. Where's mm-hmm. the real me? Um, mm-hmm. And I think that, that there have been moments, and I think those moments of confusion might be something really to look into. Um, and that, that those moments where I, prior to the past couple of weeks, um, my most frequent experience of moments of confusion that m- maybe had something of that uh, what what do I even want to call it? Is it's something raw? Okay, I'll just say it's something raw. Uh, okay. So it is when I, I live in uh, in Sweden and I live in I, I do a lot of a lot of my life in multiple cultures. Mm-hmm. And so um, I'm in Toronto, which is an inherently multicultural place. 
I'm in <laughs> yeah. Canada. It's a very multicultural place. So please go ahead. Yeah. So one of the things that can happen is that you, I have found that I could think that I have expressed something and, and then realize that that is not what was received and get very kind of uh, disoriented in the reception, in the way the reception is reflected back to me. Uh, and, and there's a, something that happens there that is, um, is like a crack in the matrix of my various contextual formations and language and and those cracks um those cracks might be the closest i know to to getting at this thing and 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 right now i think there's an awful lot of cracks of looking around and and thinking you know really who 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 are we? What what do I say? Like what what mm. can we possibly say in this moment that is authentic? And the second I try to make it authentic, it becomes inauthentic, for yeah. sure. Yeah, I understand. Um, but that was a good point you made about how um, you know that that pattern that I was pointing to, sort of historically with Heidegger, is also something we find uh, prevalent in our own. Um, attempts. Um, I, I was, what called to mind was a Leonard Cohen song when, and he talks about, you know, the crack that, let, you know, that lets the, light, the in. light in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so this leads me to, um, <clears throat> this leads me to, um, well, somebody who uh, practiced in, in introducing those cracks as a way of trying to provoke wonder, and I'd like to at some point talk about the difference between wonder, which calls the self and the world into question, and curiosity, which tries to feed and plug up the gaps in the self and, and, and the worldview. And so, um, but, but I was sort of, uh, and, and had a lot to say about um, a dialogical notion of the self, and I, I'm thinking here of the figure of Socrates that I'm, and somebody I'm working to try and understand very deeply, uh, precisely because uh, he had a form of communicative practice that centered upon um, introducing those cracks, getting people to a place of aporia, where it was possible. It was not inevitable, not inevitable, but it was possible for them to come to a state of wonder, that opening where they could call the, the, the self and the world into question, and, then they, and that could induce them uh, to see the self as something that is aspired to, as opposed to something that is already possessed. And so I'm very interested um, in um, all of that. And the question, and the work I've been doing with uh, Peter Lindbergh and Guy Senstock and Chris Master Pietro is, is it possible for us, I'm, I'm changing the question slightly, Nora, and I hope you'll be patient with me. Is it possible for us uh, to learn from that such that we could be better uh, able to pursue what we're trying to pursue right now, which is getting some um, sense of how to move towards deeper communication, deeper communing in a way that people are craving. So that's for me how I'm trying to think about this right now. I'm trying to think about it in terms of people have managed uh, in past to give us examples and to be exemplars 
of how to do the thing we're doing and what does it mean for us to learn from them? Well, first of all, can we learn from them? And then well, what does it mean for us to learn from them and how do we bring that about? Please excuse just a quick interruption. The internet cut out here for about a minute or so, but I came up with a remarkable solution and the conversation continues. Tim, are you there still? Yeah, um, I hope so. We'll have to see how we do. This is a bit of an unlikely occurrence. The internet hasn't had any, any problems since I've moved into this apartment. I'm going to open the door to the bedroom. Uh, I don't know what. <laughs> <laughs> so we're getting our own aporia here. A lot of the cracks are shining, uh, c coming right now for us. So technology is the god that limps. Um, so <laughs> exactly I like that right. you're opening the door to let the internet in. <laughs> I know. I, it's, we, are, we are last resort here. This is. <laughs> that's like that's next level, my friend. I, know. I love it. I know. Let the oh, cat out. Let the internet in. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The sacrifice is my girlfriend's extra couple hours of sleeping here. So there has been a cost to this door opening. <laughs> Does it actually work to open the door to let the internet in? <sighs> Look, I mean, I don't understand how <laughs> signals work, but um, there seems to be a physical world where there are some interactions, and uh, that's the level of bluntness <laughs> by which I'm approaching this environment. But as far as I'm concerned, it may be possible. At least you know I care. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It's my favorite thing all day. <laughs> Yeah. It's how I solve all my problems, actually. But please. <laughs> Opening doors. All right. Yeah. So let's Literally. try to get serious here and let's get to work. Mm. All right. So I was, uh, I was proposing um, uh, a model that we could consider uh, for somebody who uh, regularly, uh, he, he, like I said, he, he, he crafted the virtue of inducing the cracks in people, um, uh, the, the aporia. Uh, which let the light shine through of a new possibility of self and also a new possibility of world. And, you know, that's, that's wonder um, as this, and uh, I, I follow Fuller um, and other people and seeing wonder is very different from uh, mere, mere curiosity. Um, and that ability to induce wonder and to put, bring people to a place. It wasn't inevitable, but it was possible. Uh, where they could aspire to a different self um, and a different world um, is, is, I think, a valuable uh, example for us to uh, consider uh, precisely because the, the Socratic model of authenticity is an aspirational model. Your true self is not something you possess, um, and it's not something you possess uh, in distinction from others or your world. It's something that you aspire to continually and never in any kind of completion through an ongoing process of mutual transformation. And although I'm not claiming we can get back, that would be anachronistic and, and, and therefore fallacious uh, to Socrates or the Socratic world, although there are some very important similarities. Uh, Socrates was carrying out his practice while Athens is literally under siege. The whole city is quarantined and there had been a plague. Uh, so his context is not that different from ours in some important ways. I, I'm recommending that we that we take a look at Socratic dialogue as a way of perhaps speeding up the process by which we can learn about how to recover a relational sense of self and an aspirational sense of authenticity, perhaps, 
that are urgently needed right now. And then I, that's, and then I proposed that uh, to Nora and then she had something to say about it. Yeah, I, I really love that you're taking it to this place, John, because um, this is kind of where I'm working with all my hours and moments and days mm -hmm. and heart and soul right now. Uh, and I have been generating these, um, okay, let's call them dialogues, but they're, they're sort of, mm. the, I, I called them warm data labs, okay? So the mm. idea is mm. that there's um, an exploration of a, a, a complex question uh, mm. with a number of people, and that exploration includes them starting in small groups around mm -hmm. various contexts and then they move when they want to. I, I don't mm -hmm. ring a bell and make a move. They go where they want, when they want, and things get mm -hmm. mixed up. This is, you know, back in the days when people could be in the same room together. Right, right. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, so what I started to witness happening with that was really interesting um, mm -hmm. because as people did, explored a question, whether that question is something like, um, you know, what is health or what is identity or uh, what is authenticity could even be one. Um, right. That that becomes something that is very swiftly uh, revealed in the stories and the inputs between the people. Mm -hmm. as being something that exists between the context and between the people. So it's sort right, of very much. Yeah. A, a liminal revealer and yeah. an interdependency revealer. And, uh, and, and so I guess where I'm going with that is that the, the more of those processes that I have done, and I've been doing hundreds of them around the world, the more I... Um, I'm seeing how important it is that that process of, of opening those cracks, of, of coming into that, um, mm -hmm. that wonder is actually, uh, it's not to be done alone. No, I agree we, with that. We actually need each other to provide multiple description and by that, I don't just mean lots of perspectives. I also mean lots of textures of, mm -hmm. of ways of talking. So it's not mm -hmm. just my professional knowledge or, or just my personal stories, mm -hmm. right? You have to have both of those and questions and jokes and things that come up between people that are unexpected. Um, and that in a strange way, in the, the most intimate kind of shiftings, happen in this possibility of having multiple patternings kind of overlay like a moiré phenomenon. Mm -hmm. So that in that moiré phenomenon, there becomes, I guess one of the signatures of the moiré is that you have one pattern and then you have another pattern. And when you cross them, you have a third pattern Emergent and pattern. that third pattern can actually tell you something about either of the other patterns, but it is but, different, yeah, right? Yeah, and so yeah. what I'm getting at is that a, a kind of insight can come out of that overlay. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so this is where, where 
those insights are not actually accessible very often in life. And mm-hmm. in this moment, I'm with you. There's an urgency. Mm-hmm. And so this, this process that I've been playing with is actually kind of an accelerated um, and an accelerated interdependency insight maker. <laughs> that's great. That's amazing. Um, that's really cool. It's really cool. Yeah. I'm very excited about this. So I, if, we, if we could unpack this just a little, uh, um, the, the practice. Um, I don't know if, uh, how much you uh, know of my work, but I've been engaging in a lot of participant observation and a lot of these emerging, I call them psychotechnologies, right? These practices mm-hmm. of trying to afford insight and flow uh, within, uh, you know, uh, uh, within dialogue, within, uh, you know, distributed cognition. Um, and so uh, it's really, um, and also people trying to put things together. It's what I'm saying is there's a, this interesting convergence. So for example, I've been participating in circling and then they're, they're trying to get circling to integrate, uh, with, you know, bringing in important topical questions. So how do we go from just circling where we're maintaining the circle to making it topical in, in a fashion? And, and then what are the bridging processes you do? Cause if you just sort of slam people from circling to a topic, they, they can get sort of, it can the coherence can break and so i'm i'm it's really interesting about how a lot of things seem to be coming uh uh you know towards each other um so i i, I can i ask you some more uh i don't know uh, this isn't the right uh, adjective so but be forgiving on it can i ask you some more technical questions more specific questions about it? so yes. <laughs> sorry this is what I, I, i'm just going to be a little bit of a cognitive scientist here for a moment because i'm really really intrigued in this one thing and and and, and this is something um, that pattern, I've, 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 I'm not trying to take anything away from you. I've thought about doing that because that's very similar about, you know, this sort of small world network formation you get within a brain to provoke insight within. A per- mm. And I was wondering if we could get that sort of fluid small world network restructuring between people that would also bring about an insight. And it seems like you've actually already cottoned onto this and made, made it work. So that is... That is really fascinating. And then I'm, what I'm really interested in, uh, well, there's multiple things. You, what you said is just lighting me up right now. I'm interested in the, what's the relationship between, you know, the group insight, if you'll allow it, and the individual insights. How are they resonating with each other? How is that working? And then the thing you talked about with the patterns, Chris and I talked about that in the article, the chapter we've written about, this sort of third factor that emerges. Uh, I see it in circling all the time in which you get, you get, so you'll get people will get into this, like the two people, then these people, and then that gets layered, and you get that emergent, this what we call the third factor, uh, mm. to give it sort of uh, an ostensive reference without a very just uh, uh, clear denotation. And I'm real, and what's interesting is people's, I, I want to ask you if this is also the, like, do people sense that? Like, do they get a sense of something telling them or calling them to move from one uh, one of the groups to another, and do they get a sense of you know that something is taking shape, uh, like a, a life that has a, a sort of a, a systemic life of its own above and beyond, uh, not only the individuals but the subgroup? Because I'm definitely finding that uh, you know reported continuously when I'm doing the participant observation of these other kinds of practices. Is that is that also going on in the warm data lab? It, absolutely. And, and yeah. so one of the things that happens is that it, 
it, I mean, I, I did a lot of systems teaching and complexity teaching, and it was yeah. frankly irritating because, <laughs> you know, it, it, people would come and we'd have these great workshops and people who understood it before felt very clever. And the people who didn't understand it no, maybe great. had a little sense of it for a little while, but then it would kind of fade away. It would yeah, easier yeah. away from them. Yeah, um, and it, here's what I'm finding. Okay. is that there, the, the structure of the process has to do with creating the opportunities for about, so that people can have a conversation about the question of what is health through the context of economy, and then they can move over to family. And, and in those little circles, they tell all sorts of stories and all kinds of stuff. It, you, there's absolutely no conscious purpose control over right. what gets talked about. There's no documentation, very important. Mm -hmm. No documentation. What do you mean specifically by that? It's not recorded or people aren't allowed to cite stuff? Or what does that mean? I usually don't do either. Okay, right. Okay, there's no post-its, there's no paper tablecloths, there's nobody writing anything down because those contextual interactions, the story that you tell me about your grandmother's recipe, Mm -hmm. reminds me of something and that is a link like compost finding links finding relational process right mm -hmm. and so that that is and then i go to another context and someone says something and it connects then to your grandmother's story and the memory that that yeah. brought me yeah. to yeah. and so that this understanding of of if you want to call it systemics or complexity or interdependency, whatever you want to call that, it turns out to be very intimate. So is the idea that they're, they're, they're exemplifying it now, right? They're instantiating it. They're participating in it. They're not just sort of talking about it. Is that okay. part of what, what's going yeah. on? Well, yeah. what's happening is there's an about and there's a within. Ah, right. right? right. So the, the, the conditions of the lab, are structured to offer the space for people to talk about. Right. But in the negative space of it, there's the liminal of what's actually connecting in the within. So right. you would never have a warm data lab on relationships or communication because that would be ridiculous. Those are all things that are forming in the within. Yeah, right, right, right. Right? So, um, so that's been really interesting. And then after the, the lab, there's this moment that I would call the mutual learning moment. So then mm -hmm. there's a, a sort of a, a, a moment when we have the room in plenary and say, so, you know, what did you notice? What have you observed? And that's when you get that group lift. Right, right, okay? right, 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 right. Most of the people right, in the right, room... Right don't actually have words for what they've experienced because it's right. been such a combination of intellectual and physical yep. and emotional yep. Yep. and memory and all these things have been kind of mushing and reconnecting and they're in a territory they've never actually had to make words for before. Mm -hmm. But a couple of people in the room will find the words. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when they start to find the words, the other people also find words. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the words are usually something along the lines of, I started to notice that I, I, you know, there was repeated things in multiple contexts, that there was overlap, that when I left one context, 
the conversation that I had there didn't go out of my body. I took it with me right, and right, it's right. seasoned to the next conversation. And so you get this uh, lift mm -hmm. that happens in that moment where the whole room realizes that they've had very different experiences, but they've had a, they've had a mutual learning at the same time. Right, right, so right, right. this idea that mutual learning doesn't mean we're learning the same thing. Right, yeah. It means we're learning together. Mm -hmm. um, and that that is as unique for you or me or, you know, anybody of any age. And, and really, I've been working with this in very vulnerable communities and also in parliaments. So in inner city Pittsburgh, um, with groups of Islamic women in Asia, uh, in uh, really broken towns in the UK, yeah. and then with the Finnish politicians, or with, so it's really, it kind of, anyone can do it. Kids can do it. For um, sure, sure. Yeah. And it's I, pretty I, interesting. Oh, it's oh, fascinating. Uh, so uh, um, have you, has, has this been like, written down anywhere? Or, or have you, uh, like, because um, I'd like to learn more about it and we have limited time here. Maybe you and I can, do, I mean, how does one learn to practice it? Because that-, that Month that's... ago or now? So there's a lot of theory there. And so to, to bring this kind of back to where we are with this conversation, um, I think probably one of the most important pieces is the piece around abductive process um, mm -hmm. and and that that is the piece where it starts to become clear in this question of of authenticity that there is a kind of cross contextual description that we live within mm -hmm. everyone lives within it in yeah. fact i would say probably every living thing lives within a cross-contextual description. So if you look at an earthworm, that earthworm is a description in a way of the soil. Mm -hmm. It's also a description of the tree or of the bird or of the grandpa and grandson that are going to go fishing or of, right? So that earthworm is, is just like you and I are a description of our education system. We're a description of our culture. We're, and, and these different contexts are difficult to grab hold of and fix in isolation or in reductionism because they're actually not where they, you grab them and they're not there. Mm -hmm. You want to fix the education system, but it's actually, it's actually created in the abductive process of our, our economy and culture and intergenerational expectations and identity and, you know, all these things that then, you know, the, the education system is a consequence. Right, right. Can so, I see here, John, if, if I can, just to... Um, are we off track? <laughs> draw, no, 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 not, not at all. Uh, just to draw some things together and make sure that I'm up and with this and also uh, perhaps just to add a little bit. So... If I can synthesize sort of some of the themes we've we've touched on so far, it's importantly, authenticity is not the capturing of something that is the 
inherent and importantly fixed to you, but something that is realized in a some form of cooperative but ultimately interdependent dynamic on an ongoing basis with each other. So we are presencing from a phenomenological perspective, though we are talking more than that, um, a question might be, what is it to show up to transformation, to learning, to the drawing forth and, and um, remembering of engaging in a remembering of what it is to be with each other and also an aspiration of our becoming and deepening together. So, so what we can perhaps add in, although not to jump the gun, is what are some of these modes of orientation? And this is something I've thought a lot about. What are ways we show up actually to these moments of um, uh, when the moment is upon us? John, you like to use this term kairos, that there is a significant imminence to the now where we may be particularly challenged or call up, called upon to presence yep. ourselves in an appropriate right relationship with each other, given the given a kind of particular energetic um, context thrust upon us. And it seems to me we, if we really were to um, not be reductive, but, uh, but attempt to synthesize some core modes we might take in response to this, we can, we can um, allow ourselves to be uh, um, moved by this process in a way that's appropriate. And we can allow ourselves as well to more confront and move this process too. So there's a sort of a push and pull dynamic that can be done effectively or less effectively. And a lot of that I think has to do with how well we are able to sense what is the appropriate ripening vulnerability to step into with a certain kind of care and courage rather than to either bury our heads when faced with a moment or in fact to attempt to close that opening before in fact we were able to find and be with each other in order to then come to some kind of harmony or movement together. So, and I, and I think this can help ground us as well back in what some of the experiences are we're having in our lives at the moment, because fear of course is very much heightened and care and courage are very much called for in this time. And it is my hope in a deeper sense that the kind of theory we might be discussing in this conversation is in actual fact a crucial piece at, more than a crucial piece, that all of this together is very much involved in the movement towards the realization of we, because that is also what we are discussing here. How can we create these mutual learning environments where we can give and receive to our fullest as best we can, informative and enabling of transformation, both individually and collectively in touch with ecology. So grounding this back in our moment today I think is important because the emotionality people are experiencing and the tension they're experiencing in their lives I think we're ultimately are making calls here that there are a call for stepping into that moment holding oneself in such a way that enables us to transform that toward a wholeness not a final one Whitehead has this expression um, the many become one and are increased by one which is a process framing of some of what we are discussing here. So to add some of these pieces in, am I sort of on track with some of the core features of our discussion? I think so. Um, I, I mean, there's two things I, I guess I'd want to say first to respond to you and then to thread back to, to Nora. 
I see this as a feature of many of these emerging practices. There's this oscillation between theory and theoria, where I mean using theory in the old sense of the word, you know, the contemplative immersive involvement that, you know, gives you insight and then the reflective theory that that movement is and um, trying to figure out what some of those patterns are, not just for theory's sake, um, because I think what, what Nora is doing and, you know, what Guy is doing the circling, I like what Nora is doing though, because it's got this topical element to it that I think is really important and central. Um, and it's got this ability, it's got, it's got a grammar built in of, of, you know, explicit restructuring and the way people move around. And I think these are important things to take note of. And that's why I was taking note of them. But towards your question, uh, Tim, is that these practices give people a, a deep taste, what I call a participatory and perspectival knowing of the power and the potential of, uh, you know, of our, I, I don't like this term, uh, in, uh, but it's, uh, you know, the, uh, of our sense-making and our meaning-making uh, 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 capacities. If people... The, the thing, people will take significant hits to their standard of living um, if they get a sense, a felt sense of a course of mattering, a, a course of enhanced connectedness. That's why people have children. I mean, it, it, having a child is completely irrational from a subjective point of view because your health goes down, your finances go down, you're tired all the time, your most significant relationship is, is put into crisis. Like every, all of your subjective well-being just crashes when you have a child. You ask people why they do it. They do it because they, want it, they feel connected and involved with and involved with, not just theorizing about, they feel participatory in the creation of something that transcends them in an important way. So giving people, if you can give, these practices have a value, I would argue, in helping people remember in, you know, in the, in the sense of sati, right, mindfulness, deeply remember, you know, and I, I want to use this taste metaphor, like in the Bible, you know, taste the Lord and see that he is good, right? They can, they can remember what this is like, what it's like to be immersed in this, to flow with this. And I think that gives people a kind of faith and courage that is deeply realizable and relevant right here, right now. That's, so yes, I'm being the nerdish scientist and I'm really excited and interested about what Nora's talking about, you know, as a scientist. But I think I can make, I think I just made it. There's a case for this. The existential import of what we're discussing, I think is also apparent and should be, should be noted. Mm. So that's, mm. that's how I would respond to your, that, 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 that sort of reframing. Um, I think that here, I think we're, uh, there is, we can have a kind of stereoscopic vision where the, the theoretical concern and the existential concern are both actually being fused into a kind of depth in which that mm. is, is of value to us right here, right now. Mm. Well, that seems to be called for in this time. And I wonder if the framing of the concepts of the interior and the exterior is part of what is uh, maybe helpful to presence here as well. So core to how I've been, one way I've been attempting to communicate the project I've been on with this for some years is to, and I'm not like, I'm not happy with this framing necessarily. There's other things um, I would prefer to say, but what I have been saying explicitly in places is the process of making sense of what to care about. And of course, it's more like caring about making sense of what to care about, but there's 
because yep. there's this there's a sense in which these things are so interdependent yet there is an orientation towards i think ultimately grounded in something like um of love and for love that's i think better made better related to in a language of perhaps care or towards that metaphorical way rather than sense but we are here in this moment together where so much is shifting and it's how can we draw in what is most relevant and also be anchored in what is most worth caring about and so it's bringing these two together in the process absolutely that it seems to be so fundamental well i mean that's socrates erotica Socrates knew how to care, and that's a central idea in in Heidegger, right? The 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 the, 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 the you know the wisdom of caring well, and you know that's where I think, and I, I want to turn it back to Nora now. That's where I think the work I do on relevance realization seems to line up. Uh, I, I think I have a sense. I'm, I'm not clear yet, but it seems at least it's convergent with when she's talking about when she's talking about uh, sort of this abductive process that's at work. Um, because that comes up a lot in, 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 in my work too. And so I, I want to turn it back to Nora. Mm. Yeah, the abductive process is really interesting um, because I'm pretty sure that that's where the change actually is. Yeah, I agree. Um, and it's something that is, um, is largely missing from most of the diagrams of uh, and explanations of systems change yeah, is yeah. that there's it's actually in the abductive process that you're going to get the real shift yeah, yeah, and yeah. and that's really a, a, I would say in in my sort of um, verbiage around this that's a very transcontextual thing. Yep. It's happening across and through multiple contexts yep, and, much, much. and it requires that. And we do it all the time anyway. Mm -hmm. um, it's just a matter of allowing for a different abductive process. Mm -hmm. So if, if I'm in an abductive process where my identity is formed through and across um, the various institutions of our world, my education, my job, my family, my Mm -hmm. wealth, my economy, my health, my um, sexuality, my gender, my right, all of these things. Um, and, and, and all of them are describing each other. That's, that's the piece that when, it, when you get it, it's like, oh, that, there it is. But it's a little tricky to do in a you know, 40 minute podcast. But the thing is, is that in there, there is another kind of integrity. So when, when I'm seeing abductive shift in groups with groups of people, um, I don't guide it. No. I just make a space for it. And this is actually critical. I don't ever, ever make any inclination of what I think people should learn or could come out the other end of this thinking, because I feel like that is absolutely not my territory. Um, I can make a space for those connections to happen, but they should be alive. They should be as complex and as unique as every person in that room with infinite possibilities of connecting their ideas and stories and inputs. Um, so it's, it's very alive and that living thing is totally unpredictable. At the same time, it's pretty predictable. Every time I've done it, there's been a shift. Yes. Um, 
And so I just don't know what the details of that shift are. I don't get to voice or shape or define or in any way describe that shift. I can only make a space for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so what people are able to do when they start to move across those contexts is they can see the way in which they are interdependent and that perception without any effort has the second order response of a kind of integrity. It has to do with recognizing not integrity around what's right or wrong, but integrity to show up and respond in ways that are inclusive of that interdependency, as opposed to just looking at one um, one sort of solution in one context at a time, or or yes. one one trauma in one context at a time. You know, so often trauma gets put into really reductionist terms, mm-hmm. and so there's a, a kind of a a therapeutic and a healing quality to this that is, I think, what we're talking about when we say people are longing mm-hmm. for this mm-hmm. connection. That right. in that in that longing, what happens is that when you start to see that this thing that is a, a, a trauma that you might be carrying is not actually, it's not actually located in any particular context. It's moving between all of them and other people are sharing other traumas that are woven between all these different contexts. And suddenly that trauma isn't as internal it becomes something that is a, a, perceivably contextual and transcontextual, right. which right. is an enormous relief. And when I say it's warm data, it's, it's like literally warm. You can literally feel the warmth of that. Right. Um, so it's, uh, it's interesting to see that, and especially in this moment, which I think is... Um, a moment of a, a need for a completely, um, it's a need to integrate in another way. Yeah, I agree. And so how do we begin to create the conditions for people to integrate together into a way of seeing and, and responding to this time? I think that's an excellent question. I'm I'm particularly interested in one aspect of that question that I alluded to or I mentioned earlier, which is I'm interested in what are the conditions that afford insight for people and how those interact with what are those what are the conditions that afford insight between people? Mm. Um, and how and then there's kind of a third thing. Uh, what is the what is sort of the optimal relationship between the 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 uh, the uh, individual insight and the collective insight? Um, and I'm, I, that's something I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get a deeper understanding of. I, I, I think that the fact that people are enacting and literally moving um, and they're embodying mm-hmm. uh, the interdependence, I think that is probably playing a very significant role in, in, in the practice uh, because of, you know, you're triggering the cerebellum, you're getting people to literally reorient their visual processing, what they're foregrounding and backgrounding is literally shifting. 
we know that that those kinds of processes trigger individual insight, and then if there uh, and if that if that's an insight that also you know gets them to realize the interdependence. And I can see how the groups would also restructure collectively so that uh, various things uh, uh, are, 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 again, uh, uh, being uh, facilitated. It's interesting about this, maybe I can form a question around that bridge that I just made. Because when you look within individual cognition, uh, inducing criticality, you have to introduce some significant amount of disruption like if if, you, if somebody's trying to solve an insight problem on a computer screen, you put some static or some noise in it. You put a bit of entropy in it, or you allow, or or you moderately distract them, not too distracted, so they leave the problem, but enough that they'll sort of, you, you know, they get you break up the stability, and that criticality actually affords the restructuring, like the way a sand pile will self-organize and then it avalanches and that affords a new structure. So I'm wondering if. Um, if if you if if you see that playing a role within the warm data that there's there's you know there's 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 is there a presence of disruptive strategies sort of being played with um, you know in contrast but interdependently uh, with constructive strategies you're seeing the the criticality and the construction are sort of mutually interpenetrating is is that happening absolutely because when people go into so if you get up from one context and you walk over to another one. It was induction, yeah, yeah. Right? You, you yeah. have to actually, you know, come into that. So there's a lot of what's happening, who's here. There's yeah. a, a whole process of paying attention in ways that are all sorts of nonverbal attention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then in engaging in that conversation uh, and bringing with you this conversation that just came. Yeah, yeah, it's on board yeah. and maybe the one before that because so it's usually the third context that you start to get the the pop yeah that makes sense uh, to me and yeah. it's um it's also being in a room where there are all those contexts so you have you're in a room where there is this meta right and that and so really people can yeah. hear it in the background to some degree right that's they can hear right the yeah yeah and so that you don't get to forget that you're in this meta, which is really interesting. It, it actually, um, it really decreases the possibility for polarization. Mm. So, it, which is really, really interesting, especially in, you know, in these times where there's been so much polarization that, you know, usually we go traveling down a rabbit hole because we feel like there's some context someone's not seeing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, but if it's in the room and it's just over there, you can just go over there. <laughs> it's not right, forgotten. Right. So p people are less prone to positioning. Right? Yeah. Right, right. Right. So there's that, and that is, I guess you could call that a disruptor, but it's a gentle one. Yeah, well, that's it, what I mean. You want mild yeah. disruption. You don't. You don't want to. You don't want to break the system, right? No. But, but you've got to perturb it. Because if you don't perturb it enough, it, it, you know, it'll get into a local minima. It'll, it'll stabilize prematurely. Uh, and then people can often not you know, explore this, the space of possibilities as deeply as, uh, as, is, as, as is probably needed. Um, and the other thing is that I, I think that you talked about topics. Yeah. And one of the things that is really important is to not have topics where people have scripts. So how, that's an interesting question. How do you do that? Because uh, you know a lot of the a lot of the things you brought up, 
uh, as examples struck me as one on which people often have, you know, pretty firm opinions that have a lot of cultural uh, uh, baggage attached to them, like health, for example. Like, you know, people have lots of opinions about health, of course, now even more so. And there's all this cultural valoration of health. Uh, Han says, you know, that health has become our god in some ways. Uh, it's, every, it's the thing that justifies everything else we do. Um, so how, what does that mean? That, that you, that's very provocative, what you just said. Um, how, how would you bring up like that? Ex that let's do that one because it's actually relevant to. How would you bring up health and keep it off script? Like, how does that work? Well, you might bring up family. Mm. Okay, if I was working with a bunch of doctors, right. um, I might bring use family oh, so and have health be one of the contexts. I see, I see, I see. So that you get this... Um, you decenter you know, it. Right, you get it off center so that you can actually reorient and re that ah. the abductive processes move in other ways. Oh, that's very good. That's very good. Yeah, because decentering strategies also are things found within individual cognition and insight. So it, it's interesting, uh, uh, that mirroring. That's really cool. Um, I had one recently, and, and, and this, I think, Tim, this really is important with your question around authenticity, because mm -hmm. this, is, this is kind of critical, is how to get off of these scripts. And the scripts have meaning and have, um, have a set of signaling um, and receiving possibilities within relationships. If you, if you are in a set of different relationships, those signalings don't go anywhere. You can still signal, but they just kind of dud. Um, so it, it's, it's something to get off context to if you have a bunch of you know, doctors talking about um, media, for example, and family, and suddenly the, the, there's all kinds of health stuff that is implicit in there. And it connects in, but it isn't what they're saying. So it's this thing of not going for the direct corrective, which is going to generate all sorts of reductionist scripted, maybe, um, I don't know how that connects to authenticity, but I know that when people don't know what they're going to say and they haven't said that thing before and they weren't considering the, the, the thing that was going to come from the person that just said a thing, that, that they, they enter into a discourse in another way. They enter into a, a mutual learning in a way that surprises even them. Well, I, but I think that's excellent connection to authenticity, Nora. I mean, what yeah. you're saying is there's a deep connection between getting off script and what we're trying to do here. I mean, right, it, it, it is in this discussion about authenticity is we're trying to get, I mean, there's kind of a meta level. We're trying to get off script about authenticity. And it's now, it's now that, well, part of what this re attempt to reformulate authenticity is, is centering on is the very capacity and ability to get off script. But do it, like you said, you have to do it in this, you have to do it, you know, you have to do it in a discerning way. You have to pick, you have to get, like if it's health and you go off center because you actually talk about family, you wouldn't talk about like elephants, for example, right? It, it's right. about, it's, you gotta, it, like, so there's finesse in this. Mm. I, I, I get a sense that there's finesse in this. If, you know, I'm a Tai Chi player and there's this sense about, you know, uh, uh, can, you, can you pick up on the grain of things and follow the grain 
and, and get a sense of how, you know, well, you know, so you're sparring with somebody, as you said, you know, you don't just hit them because they'll just block, but can you get them off center? And then there's possibilities that open up. And so I think, I think I, I like what you just said. I like this idea about uh, a connection between uh, uh, a, a reconceptualization perhaps of authenticity by connecting it to getting people off script in, uh, you know, in a way that shows finesse and affords uh, insight. I think that's a very, I think that's very powerfully connected to what we're talking about with authenticity. Yeah, that all of this rings very true. And um, there's some things I can presence here that I think are, are vital. And um, I suppose to go meta on it, the turn is for me to speak personally. Mm. The reason for that is when we drop into the personal and move towards where we are vulnerable, this has an effect on the setting, the context within which other participants may or may not be willing to go. And so here, why, John, you, you reference finesse. Mm -hmm. Because, of course, there are the three of us here, but there are also more than the three of us here, at least mm -hmm. potentially. And this is very significant. And this is an obstacle, not an obstacle without its, an opportunity, but an obstacle we all here face. This notion of off script is something that has had much resonance with me for a long time. I, in fact, set up an event last year. I uh, hired out a theater and the event was called off script. And I ah. attempted to have people come along to that event. But I canceled it because I could not get anyone to come. So the question is, how then do you invite a setting where we really can't go off script? Because the price is high. The, the price of admission is much higher than the ticket. Because really, if we were to open up again to the significance we are here a part of, this moment we are in in the world, the vulnerability there, the confrontation with death, and perhaps worse, that is there. The various ways in which we may or may not have been seen with each other on this ride towards that which we perceive as perhaps ending and in suffering, I think all magnifies each other. And so, yes, things are about going off script and they always have been and whether or not we were aware of it, part of us always was. We just lost awareness of it, even as we ran out certain programs and mistook perhaps our programs for the totality. But there are, it seems to me, things we can stand on and ground ourselves on, even though that is not a fixed ground. There are certain imperatives that we can or cannot accept, a covenant, if you like, we can enter into. Of course, all things can be broken, but there are consequences to, those, to that breaking. And so as we are here attempting to understand what is affordant of authenticity and what is affordant of, or the presencing of authenticity in relationship as amenable to a reciprocal opening and this abductive process of understanding, 
one thing I think can be put forward is that a commitment to be here now together, at least for a certain duration, knowing that cutting the duration itself is already limiting the context if we take that to be truly what we are doing. So what does it mean to then truly commit to being here with each other? And just how much are we able to integrate through that process, even as someone drops into the space with the context shifting and psyche unsettling and chaos inducing fluxes, apparitions of the vulnerability of our existential predicament, both now and perhaps also eternally. So the commitment to really step in is not a flippant one. And this, I suppose, is not a bad place for me to stop this and see if this has landed. It strikes me that what you're talking about is a kind of rigor. Mm-hmm. Um, and that it's a, a, a rigor that I, I have so much affection for because it's, it's a, a rigor for perceiving and looking for maybe with that wonder that you were speaking of earlier, John, mm. um, uh, you know, interdependency is a lot of differences, a lot of vitalities, a lot of interactions, a lot of relational messiness. Um, And it's not to be underestimated, the kind of, um, the kind of multi-sensory perception that it takes to pay attention in that way. Um, And so it's, you know, it's not as if you can just do complexity as an intellectual game, right? It's, if you don't allow that complexity to be perceived through your own complexity, that is not just in words or jargons or maps, but also in stories and music and unspoken sensed things and all kinds of other information that's there. You need all of it. If you're going to enter into that integrity or that authenticity, it's a kind of alertness in the rigor. Um, And so I, I guess that's what I'm kind of hearing you say right off the bat. What do you think, John? What are you hearing? Well, I'm hearing something similar to that and overlaps with it. And I'm hearing uh, the commitment. And I like the notion of rigor. Um, um, I'm hearing um, that, Nora, that you're, uh, you talk about things. I, I use language of kinds of knowing that are not propositional. There's procedural knowing and perspectival and participatory. And I think what you're saying is, uh, the knowing, and I'm using knowing, not knowledge, deliberately, mm-hmm. knowing of complexity is something we only know within and through our own complexity, right? It's, it's a participatory knowing. It's not just a referential knowing. And I think that's uh, really important. 
Um, and so I'm hearing that the commitment therefore is a kind of comprehensive commitment um, to, um, I like this notion of rigor about trying to bring, uh, I, 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 well, let, let, me, let me try it this way. What I heard when I heard that rigor and that you took it to those deep levels in response to Tim is like I said, I'm hearing, I'm hearing virtue. I'm hearing, I'm hearing that um, where virtue doesn't mean the possession of a rule, uh, we reduced virtue, which originally meant a sort of person whole capacity and power for dealing with you know, the, the messy, ill-defined situations of life. And then we reduced it um, to the possessions of sets of rules um, uh, and, you know, and, um, you know, sort of Kantian procedures. And I think that's why the Aristotelian model of the virtue as kind of something that's always found between different kinds of, um, vices, of vices of defect and vices of excess. Um, and so it's, it's, a virtue is more like a virtual engine. It, it, it's what constantly steers you, uh, between the vicissitudes of a self-organizing process so you don't uh, fall out of it. Um, that's, mm. and that's what I hear uh, Tim saying is, is needed that people that come into these, the intention to commit is necessary, but nowhere sufficient for being able to commit. You need uh, particular skills and virtues in order to commit in the way uh, we're talking about here. Now, I don't want to, I don't want to build a, uh, you know, a catch 22 in here. I think the, the practice that Nora is talking about is a way in which people can start to cultivate uh, these mm -hmm. virtues. But I think to meet the normative demand that Tim is talking about, I think we do need to talk about virtue at some point, that these practices uh, should result in uh, people carrying away in their person, not beliefs, but carrying away skills and virtues uh, that transfer into multiple contexts in your life. Um, and, I, you know, and I think the meta virtue, of course, is wisdom. And so uh, I, that's what I think is the normativity uh, that I heard you pointing towards, Tim. And I think when you can, um, when people can realize, and I mean that in both senses of the word, come to awareness and make real, when people can realize that these practices are affording, deeply affording of the cultivation of, of connectedness uh, and the virtues that would properly house it and, uh, and guide it, I think that's deeply motivating to people. I think that's deeply motivating to people. I think that goes back towards, you know, giving them a taste, uh, but a taste of the good, if you'll allow me a platonic word. And you know what? You know what Nora was talking about sounded so similar to me to what Iris Murdoch talks about when she talks about the, you know, the, 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 the necessity for paying, you know, to, for a particular kind of complex attention. Uh, and she, it's called the sovereignty of the good for a reason. She, she allies that capacity with the ability to orient towards the good, to love the good, to be tempted by the good. Um, and I think when people get a taste for this, um, Tim, that could really afford the kind of commitment um, that you're talking about. That's what, that's, that's what I hear. Yes. Can I ask how, I, I, I just think it appropriate here to just check in um, and to be conscious of everyone's time. Um, what are we looking at over the next few minutes here? I'm, I, I had us down to 5.30, <laughs> so I, I, I'm coming up, uh, I'm coming okay. up on sort of a hard uh, time yes. soon. 
I, 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 I don't want, I mean, I don't want to be presumptive um, and I don't want to corner Nora in any way uh, or you, Tim, but I'm happy to come back and to have another discussion. I found this one um, incredibly rich and you could tell at times it was, uh, it was really uh, getting me quite impassioned in the good sense of the word. Um, me too. So, it's yes. been so nice to meet you. So I love this. Yeah. Yeah, long yeah. overdue what took us so long i don't know uh, the world intervenes in our lives in ways right <laughs> that's just yeah. i think that's 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 how it's happened so again i'm not making a demand on anybody i'm just speaking for myself i am committing if it is desired uh, to do one of these again um i enjoyed this thoroughly i think it's fruitful and valuable and pertinent uh given where we're at right now um and so you know and it doesn't have to be a long time from now if, if schedules permit and people are willing and wanting, you know, a few yes. weeks from now, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to do this again and pick up yes. on these threads and keep going. Um, yes. So I'm just saying that right here, right now, as a way of expressing my gratitude by making a commitment. Yes. I, I second that. So, Great. yeah, Great. Cool. be honored. Well, thank you so much. And uh, as usual for me, with, with so much more to say and in the acceptance that the time is not now, I will um, thank you so much for for joining me. This was for me um, an opportunity, uh, an intention to bring together two people that I find to be um, to possess no no shortage of beauty and wisdom. Well, thank you, and thank you. for bringing us together. It's always a pleasure to see you, Tim, and it's been a great pleasure meeting and getting into dialogue with you, Nora. Uh, and I look forward to doing it again. I do yeah. too, John. And thank you so much, Tim. If you would like to be part of dialogues like this, group conversations, then you can follow the link to the website in the description. This really is a call to participate. And hey, let's see what we can do. Oh.